Chapter 7 of A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 7 Memory the fundamental fact in experience to touch the reality of spirit we must place ourselves at the point where an individual consciousness continuing and retaining the past in a present enriched by it thus escapes the law of necessity the law which ordains that the past shall ever follow itself in a present which merely repeats in another form and that all things shall ever be flowing away bergson the moment of experience is a true duration. It is not a succession of instants, one of which alone exists, while the rest are non-existent, and remembered, or not yet existent, and anticipated. It is true duration, because within it the whole content is present and existing. That is to say, there cannot be within the moment of experience a distinction between what exists and what does not exist, for to exist is to be within the moment of experience to be present or now psychologists as we have seen have recognized this fact to a certain extent in the theory of the specious present but only partially and without accepting its full significance it is clear for example that an event however brief its duration in order to be an event must have unity it seems however that this unity can only consist in the mental image the mind forms of the event for an event has a beginning and end, and these cannot be simultaneous. They are the first and last instance of a series of constituent instants, which, in reality, are essentially discrete and unconnected. Physical science seems to confirm this, for the briefest period in which we can discriminate an event as a unity, for a visual event something approaching one eight-hundredth of a second, is demonstrably composed of hundreds of billions of discrete events, and there is no possibility in thought of setting a limit to this discreteness. If an event be thought of in this way, if we distinguish the discreteness of its instance as its reality from the mental image as its unity, then we are forced to the absurd conclusion that in reality nothing exists, for all the component instants of the event apart from the mental image are past or future, and therefore non-existent and the present is only a limit between the two series, and therefore neither an event nor part of an event. Psychologists have recognized the impasse, and in the theory of the specious present, have reformed the concept of an event. The now of experience is not for them the mathematical present instant. It contains within this a bit of the past and a bit of the future united or held together. But if past and future are non-existent, their union will not produce existence adding not to not will yield not in other words if the event be real and be constituted of discrete elements the discrete elements must be existent not non-existent if past and future are non-existing their union or inclusion will not constitute an existing present is there not however a way of getting round the difficulty it is not it will be said the actual past and future instants which are held together in the specious present but their apport or content which the mind retains in an ideal form when they are non-existent let us admit that the past was 
but is not, that the present is without duration, and that the future is not, but will be. Have we not the fact that the past has been, and the future will be, and may not the present be the actual passing of the will be into the has been? Is not this fact, which in the moment of experience we may be said actually and directly to observe, enough to constitute the reality of the event? This is not a way of escape. An event is wholly existent and wholly one. It is not partly existent and partly non-existent. What I perceive as existing now is not made into an event by my remembering what existed before. Something more is necessary. The actual past must be existing in what is present. It admits no breach, however, infinitesimal. Equally, it holds that the future is not merely will be, but is actually existing in the present. Let past and future be in any sense non-existent, or, if you will, not present, and the event is non-existent. Posit the mind and over against it a formless manifold. Suppose the mind the sole agent, support, and substance of events, and then the events indeed may be considered as composed of non-existence. But the mind is wholly present and existent, and the problem of past, present, and future arises immediately in regard to it. Or again, we may conceive God performing the function which Berkeley conceived necessary, keeping our perceptions in existence when we are not perceiving them, but then again we shall have the problem of past, present, and future in the continuity of God. Try in what way we will, we shall find it a priori impossible to constitute existence out of non-existence. We are all acquainted with reality in the fact that we are living, sensing, thinking, willing, acting, beings. It certainly seems to us that the primary characteristic of this reality is that there is a present moment sharply distinguished from past and from future moments, and this sharp distinction seems to lie in the fact that the present is existent, the others non-existent. We are sensible of the present, we remember the past, we imagine the future, but our memory of the past and our anticipation of the future are both within the sensible present. So then, even if we admit that in a sense within the moment of experience past and future are present, and there is no distinction of existence and non-existence, yet between the moment of experience and other moments there is the fundamental distinction between existence and non-existence. Clearly, if there be no difficulty in conceiving the moments external to the present moment as non-existing, there can be no difficulty in thinking the instance within the moment non-existing. Is it then a fact that between the moment of experience and the preceding and succeeding moments there is this distinction? Directly we face the problem from the point of view of the concept of life. We see that the concept of past, present, and future as a distinction of existing from non-existing moments is a contradiction. The concept of life involves the existence of past and future in a present moment, and involves their existence not in the shadow form of memory images and ideas, but in the concrete and comprehensive and fundamental meaning which we give to the word existence. How come we then to view reality as a passing of existence into non-existence and a coming of non-existence into existence? How come we to class past, present, and future as a series of moments distinguished fundamentally by the predicate of existence. It cannot be a fundamental distinction in reality, 
but it is a way in which by our very nature and the mode of our activity we view reality it is an artifice or device which characterizes our intellectual mode of activity and in proof that it is not fundamental we need only appeal to the logical principle itself ex nihilo nihil fit it is unthinkable that non-existence can be the ground of existence what then is the fundamental fact in experience if the foregoing argument is sound the fundamental fact in experience is memory but in this case memory is not a faculty which some species of living creatures have acquired it is real existence and the basis of living activity conscious experience depends on memory as its condition by this is not meant merely that knowledge implies a power of remembering the past much less that memory is the present recollection by the mind of the non-existent past what is meant is that memory is the actual and active existence in the present of what has been acting and indeterminate but is now acted and determined memory can no more be detached from experience and experience remain than the stuff of which anything consists can be detached from the thing which consists of it this is not a view that we find at all easy to accept it seems opposed to the plainest direction of the science of the mind it appears self-evident and clear to the most ordinary reflection that the fundamental fact in consciousness must be sensation almost instinctively psychology begins with the description of sensation and it not only seems that nothing is more ultimate and more fundamental but that it could exist unsupported and is itself the basis of all experience and the primitive psychical fact out of which the higher powers of the mind have been evolved we may discover that sensation depends on physiological conditions of organization that it comes late if not last in the biological order but so far as knowing is concerned it is first the foundation from which all knowledge is raised and last the ultimate constituents into which the most developed knowledge can be resolved are sensations the primary purpose of sensation appears to be responsive action by the organism and this seems to develop into a higher power that of perceiving present existing external reality and superimposed on perception as a kind of extension of it there seems to have been developed the still higher power of memory which by enabling us to retain the perception in the form of an image or idea gives us the means of organizing experience the order of genesis of experience seems therefore to be first sense impressions accompanied by specific responses second the perception of the objects which are the occasion of the sense impressions and are the formation of images third the retention and recall of the images formed in perception and this last endowment of the organism memory enables us to organize experience into systems of science which give us control over the environment this seems to us not only the natural order in which the special phenomena of conscious experience have evolved but the very principle of evolution itself which proceeds from the simple to the complex why then are we called on to reject this clear and straightforward account supported as it is by the whole of natural science and the whole of mental science as represented by psychology because we find that it will not stand the test of a philosophical principle when we submit this process to philosophical analysis we discover generally to our astonishment that not sensation but memory is the fundamental fact in experience which conditions everything perception is then seen to be dependent upon memory and not vice versa and sensation to depend on perception it seems a paradox 
it seems equivalent to affirming the contradictory proposition that there may be memory not merely as the potentiality but as an actuality when as yet there is nothing to remember when however we analyze the concept of perception we see that what is essential in it is recognition and recognition supposes memory this problem of recognition is a problem of philosophy for it is concerned with concepts it brings out clearly that not merely theoretically but in actual fact memory is the fundamental condition of conscious experience the most concrete fact in experience while sensation is bare abstraction incapable of being self-subsistent experience in the problem of the nature of recognition two questions arise which it is advisable to treat separately the first concerns the nature of the modification of cognition which constitutes it a recognition this is the problem of recognition so far as its source is within the individual's experience the second is the question how there can be recognition as there appears to be when there is no conscious memory of the prior cognition this is the problem of recognition so far as its source is beyond the individual's experience and in his ancestral experience the two questions together form one problem the nature of intelligent and instinctive recognition and their relation in recognition there is as distinctive of the experience an element we may describe as againness it is the experience had before seen already the first question concerns therefore the nature and genesis of the experience of againness the second question inquires how there can be as there certainly appears to be recognition in the first performance by an animal of an instinctive action these two questions may appear to be quite distinct and to have nothing whatever in common and some may object that while the first is a question which can only be resolved by subjective or introspective analysis and is therefore in the full sense a question of philosophy the second is merely a question of descriptive natural history and any theory founded on the description can only be of quite secondary philosophical importance it must rest they will say almost entirely on analogy and if treated philosophically cannot avoid the taint of anthropomorphism i shall try to show that this is not so the two questions are in my view very closely associated and are indeed part of one and the same metaphysical problem at the same time i propose to keep them distinct there may be no pure cognition every cognition may be a recognition and a pure cognition may be a limiting concept in a developed consciousness such as ours were there only pure cognitions and no recognitions there would be no acquirement of meaning and therefore no experience in the ordinary sense of the word the recognitions in present experience may be the cognitions on which future recognitions depend and so likewise the cognitions on which present recognitions depend may themselves have been recognitions pure cognition however is theoretically conceivable and as an abstract possibility it forms part of the concept of experience as a concrete reality logically and etymologically cognition is presupposed in recognition cognition is the ground or condition of recognition if the second apprehension of an individual object or of an identical event were a repetition of the first apprehension and only numerically different from it recognition would simply be the addition of memory and judgment to the mental act of apprehension but plainly this is not the fact 
for there are cases of recognition in which there is no repetition of any experience at all, and in most cases of recognition, if not in all, even though there may seem to be a similarity between a present experience and a past experience on which a judgment of identity can be based, there is no similarity, in fact. If this be disputed, it is at least certain that there may be recognition where there is not even similarity between the present recognized object and any previous experience of that object whatever. The term recognition, as distinct from the term cognition, connotes that the meaning or content or implication of a sense presentation is in some way already known. It is the direct, immediate apprehension of familiarity with the object presented to us. The nature of this apprehension of a mark of our own past experience in an object present to sense or to thought is the problem of recognition. How far can we directly observe the process of recognition at work, the process by which cognition acquires the modification which makes it recognition? Let me begin by taking some definite instances of what everyone would accept as cases of recognition. This appears an easy thing because recognition is a perfectly familiar experience. It is, however, particularly difficult, and the difficulty is of a quite paradoxical nature due to the veritable embarrass de riche. I can find nothing else in my cognitive experience but recognitions, and I cannot therefore establish by a clear example what is a recognition in distinction from what is only a cognition. Nevertheless, for practical purposes, we make a clear and well-marked distinction between what we term recognitions and the cognitions on which they depend. It is only when we analyze these cognitions that we find that they in their turn are also recognitions. When we push our analysis to the point of imagining the simplest conditions of cognition and the absolutely unanalyzable character of the first cognition, we are driven to hypostasize some theoretical being like Condillac's statue and endow it with sense organs one at a time and follow out the gradual complications of sense experience from its hypothetically simple origin. It is logic or epistemology which spurs us to the attempt, not psychology. The young chick at first pecks instinctively at all small objects but experience very rapidly teaches it that it is pleasant to peck at some things, such as yolk of egg or cabbage moth caterpillars, and very unpleasant to peck at others, such as cinnabar caterpillars or bits of orange peel. The young chick profits by experience, and thereby comes to recognize objects. The latter experience we should call recognition of objects in distinction from the earlier experience, and this earlier experience we should call cognition in contrast to the later experience. I arrive in a town I have not visited before, and take a first stroll through its streets. All that I notice is new to me, and I set to work to find my way about. After a time or two, or on a second stroll, I am familiar with my surroundings, and I recognize what I see. The later cognitions I call recognitions, as distinguished from the earlier ones on which they depend, and which I then think of as cognitions merely. Two friends are walking in the country for the enjoyment of the exercise. Each is experiencing the same exhilaration from the crisp air, the bright sunshine, and the beauty of the surroundings. One is an engineer, the other a naturalist. Their recognitions are entirely distinct. The one recognizes gradients, strains, actual or possible constructions, and the details of locomotive devices to which his companion are merely roads, banks, hills, valleys, engines, and so forth. The other recognizes the character of the vegetation, the nature of the soil and subsoil, the various species of animals, 
which to his companion are merely green grass, hedgerows, woods, and singing birds, and so forth. Here then we have a practical difference between recognition and general awareness. It is only part of experience which we distinguish as recognition, and one man's recognitions are different from another's, even when the sense stimuli of each are, so far as they are external influences, identical. A favorite book of mine is Fielding's Tom Jones, but the enjoyment it never fails to give me is due to something literary, and perhaps to something sympathetic in the author, not to an interest in the plot. Yet I distinctly remember the delightful surprise I experienced on the first reading as the plot unfolded itself. This enjoyment can never recur, and in this respect recognition, in giving me againness, leaves me poorer. It illustrates, however, and this is why I cite it, how recognition may depend upon an experience, the repetition of which the recognition itself renders impossible. With these illustrations of the use of the term recognition, let me try and define it. Recognition is the whole content, meaning, or significance of a sense presentation in so far as we have learnt that content, meaning, or significance by experience. What is recognized, or what we call objectively the recognition, is what we have learnt by experience. And learning by experience is a subjective process, by which I mean an activity of the mind. I think we always mean this by recognition. We perceive, in what is present to sense, what we have learnt to know is this, that, or the other, and the perception gives to the sense presentation the mark of already seen, had before, againness. Against this definition, it may be objected that we use the term recognition in describing purely instinctive behavior, behavior which we characterize as action, which is perfect at its first performance, and therefore excludes the notion of learning by experience. We say, for example, that animals recognize their prey, or recognize their kin, or recognize a menace to their life, or to that of their offspring, and we apply the term even to creatures which, like most of the insects, begin their individual life without having known their parents, and whose knowledge cannot possibly have been acquired by individual experience at all. Undoubtedly, the use of the term recognition in cases of pure instinct is derived from its use in cases of rational knowledge and many will no doubt deny that there is any identity of fact underlying the use of the term in the case of instinct. I think it is a right term to use, although primarily it only means that the creature acts as one who has learnt by experience and therefore already knows. The difference between instinctive recognition and intelligent recognition is that the mark of the past in instinctive experience cannot be explained by individual but only by racial experience. It is innate or congenital. Recognition always implies that there has been past experience and that the individual has learnt by it, though the past experience is not, in cases of instinct, the individual's past experience. A more fundamental objection, however, will be raised. To explain recognition as learning by experience is to explain what is difficult to understand by something more difficult to understand. Even if it be granted that recognition always depends on our having learnt by experience, this will bring no solution of the problem. It simply overwhelms the difficulty of accounting for a modification of a present datum of experience by a mark of past experience with the far greater difficulty of conceiving a process by which the past can modify the present. I admit this difficulty, and the main purpose of the present study is to make it explicit. Recognition implies that we learn by experience, and learning by experience implies mental process modifying the data of knowledge. 
It implies also that there are no unmodified data as ultimate constituents of the reality we know, for if there were, they would be unrecognizable. Many philosophers will also, I know, reject my order of implication ab initio. Learning by experience, they will say, implies recognition, and wholly depends upon it, whereas recognition does not imply learning by experience, for it is theoretically impossible in minds whose knowledge is purely contemplative. Indeed, such must necessarily be the order of implication for those who hold that knowledge is essentially contemplation. Recognition will be, for them, a perception or a judgment of a relation between two terms, one a present sense datum, the other a memory. Recognition is immediate experience. The process which has made it recognition is already past, and not to come. The sense datum, if we use that term to denote the actual object present to the mind, has not to wait for the judgment or perception of a relation in order that it may become, what as yet it is not, recognition. Take then any one of my four cases and attempt to reduce it to the perception or judgment of likeness between a present sense datum and remembered sense data, and you will soon discover the failure is absolute. Not only is there no identity, this is obvious. We might, perhaps, posit an identity of unperceived substances, if that would help us at all, but there can be no identity of sense data. There is not even similarity. Take the chick which first pecks the cinnabar caterpillar, then afterwards rejects it, while it continues to peck the cabbage caterpillar. The sense data are entirely different the second time, for the chick has learnt to distinguish the objects, which as physical objects are unaltered, that is to say, the resemblance between the caterpillars, so far as the resemblance is objective, has not disappeared on the second occasion. The important thing is that whatever the chick knows about the caterpillar when meeting it the second time, it rejects it, is something it has learnt the first time. If it has learnt nothing the first time, it will learn nothing by repetition. Only if it has learnt something the first time will it modify its action the second time. I have chosen this particular illustration for its simplicity as an instance of intelligent, not of instinctive recognition. No one supposes that logical processes take place in the mind of a newly hatched chick. It is possible they do, but it is a possibility most people would ignore. Now we may suppose that recognition is the condition of learning by experience, or we may suppose that it is conditionate. If it be the condition, we must suppose that there is a mental process involving a memory image, an act of comparison and a judgment or perception of a relation, as well as the present perceptual matter. It seems to me highly improbable, but even if I suppose there is, learning by experience does not necessarily follow. Whereas, if I suppose the animal learns by experience, recognition is a necessary consequence. Take the other illustrations. Unless I am learning by experience in my first stroll in the strange town, my second stroll will be equally strange. There will be no recognition. The sense data will yield nothing on which a judgment of identity can be based, for they are not the same nor similar. So with the third and fourth illustrations. The recognition is not the observation of a relation of likeness between sense data. I shall search forever and in vain for any likeness. Recognition is due to a progressive work of the mind exercised at and from the beginning of experience and continually throughout experience. It is not an external act of comparison of the experience of one moment with that of another, an earlier moment, possibly only at the later moment, and dependent simply on the power of the mind to retain and revive a memory image of the earlier moment. 
I recognized in the later moment only what I have learned in the first moment, but to be able to recognize, I must have been learning by experience. Learning by experience is not something which happens only on the repetition of a particular experience. It is a primary process taking place on the first occasion. Learning by experience presupposes a distinction between the mind and its objects. The expression itself implies that there is something obstinately objective in the reality opposed to thought, stubborn fact which the mind may turn to practical advantage by understanding it and adapting conduct to it. It also supposes that what is past can still, though past, modify present action. This seems to be affected by the blending of memory with sensation and perception. Learning by experience, further, positively excludes the notion of pure repetition. Every fresh instance comes before the mind modified by previous experience. The problem as it affects theory of knowledge may be presented then as an inquiry into the a priori conditions of recognition. What are the conditions of an experience in which there is no repetition, but a continual modification of the present by the past? What is the meaning in such an experience of againness? What mental factors are necessarily supposed, and how do they bring about the result? And what do they imply as to the immediate nature of mind and reality? The factors seem to me to be these. 1. Retention. 2. Revival. 3. Discrimination. 4. Selection. 5. Habit memory. 6. Pure memory or recollection. I will briefly indicate what I mean by each. 1. Retention is the presence together in consciousness of what is before with what is after in experience. It is the holding together in a present duration span of an experience itself successive. The duration span of consciousness I have already described as the moment of experience. The retention implied in that phrase is the essential character of the mind which makes connected experience or consciousness of duration possible. Without it, experience is inconceivable. Were there no retention in this primary meaning, sense impressions, did they exist, would be fleeting and perishing as the stimuli which occasion them. Retention appears to me the most direct and the most obvious instance of the reality we name mind, and the clearest manifestation of its essential character. 2. Revival is the recall of an experience after it has ceased to be retained in present consciousness. It is also named retention because it implies that experience which has passed out of consciousness is still retained. It is different, however, from what I have called retention, for the revival experience comes to consciousness without the peculiar character of being present to sense and with the ghostly character of a memory image. It is revival which makes the past appear to us a continuous objective reality to any part of which we can turn our attention, in the same way as that in which we turn our attention to any part of the objective reality we call spatial. 3. By discrimination, I mean that experience can be dissociated or disintegrated on any principle, and the elements so dissociated can be associated and reintegrated in any order and on any principle. I include under discrimination both disintegration and reintegration, for they seem to me to form one mental activity. Each of our individual minds seems distinguished from every other mind, not by its objective experience, but by its own special center of interest and the standpoint from which it orders and arranges its experience. 4. By selection, I mean the suppression or the exclusion from consciousness 
or the neglect by consciousness of some aspects of experience or of some influences which if admitted would modify experience or of some data which if attended to and not neglected would tend to make experience an undifferentiated whole instead of a discrete reality the discreteness of the objective world of our knowledge is due to the mental work of selection the selection is exercised automatically in the first instance by the sense organs and by many of the neural mechanisms of the brain but also directly by the mind itself five habit memory fixes past experience by setting up motor dispositions in the brain it is a memory which repeats or reacts the past as distinguished from a memory which surveys it six pure memory or recollection is the past preserved as a record it enables us to date our experience it is more than schismatization in a time order and space order it apprehends an absolute or integral time order every part of which is in an indissoluble relation of time and circumstance with every other part these seem to me the essential factors of recognition these are not hypothetical but the essential facts in our experience which enable us to form concepts of mind and the modes of its activity i do not conceive the factors i have distinguished as separate activities assembled in the mind or in the organism or as separate characters or attributes of the mind sometimes present in sometimes absent from its activity and i do not conceive mind as a general term or class name to denote these specific activities for they imply a real substance and a real life all the activities i have distinguished but especially the last pure memory or recollection imply that the past is recorded that a register of it exists recollection is inconceivable as a fact and must be pure illusion unless there exists a register of the past the register seems to be integral and independent of actual recollection i do not propose to enter on a full exposition of this theory there can be no doubt i think that there exists a register for a fact such as recollection is conditioned by it the only question can be whether this register is in the mind or the brain in my view this register or record is the substance of mind i use the term substance only in order to distinguish between mental stuff and mental life memory is this stuff but mind is not mere receptivity a growing record of external material it is an active process the life of the mind is a continuous organization of experience the mind is not passive waiting on experience and passing judgment on it reflexively as it flows past the mind advances to meet experience its attitude is not contemplative but expectant it is forward-looking ready prepared ready organized to receive the external influences reaction to which is the primal necessity of life this attitude has been named attention to life it characterizes mind wherever in the animal world we meet it it determines in advance the form the coming experience will assume nothing is less like the mind than the old-time image of the wax tablet on which the objects of the external world make imprints the mind as i conceive it is an active power of organizing experience and lives by assimilating the experience it organizes a good illustration of this work of the mind is afforded us by the physiology of the organism the digestive organs the stomach and intestines in particular were before the days of scientific physiology regarded as more or less mechanical receptacles for food supplied with the necessary acids and ferments for reducing it and fitted with a kind of filter apparatus for letting the nutriment pass into the blood-stream 
and all these contrivances had nothing else to do but passively wait for supplies which when they came were mechanically and automatically reduced and utilized modern physiology gives us an entirely different notion of the vital activities at work in the digestive process a vast system of coordinated activities each with its distinct function is ready prepared to receive and deal with the food the supply of the food is not in its control neither the quantity nor the quality but though dependent on external supply the result of the process is not determined by the external supply it is regulated and delicately adjusted by the pre-adaptation of the digestive processes themselves which exercise selection and discrimination the result is the maintenance of the living body in a state of efficacy and equilibrium as one organic unity the mind appears to me as a spiritual organism which maintains itself in the same way experience is as it were fed to it but the mind is not a passive receptor it does not contemplate the reality which flows past it it incorporates it it meets experience with a ready prepared organization to deal with it its various activities are those i have named retention memory selection and the rest the result is the maintenance of an individual soul the unity of a personal character let me now return to the direct problem of recognition this problem is to account for the occurrence of againness in experience even though nothing is repeated to account for the feeling of seen before this again had already directly attached to the object of cognition this feeling requires explaining because in fact there is no repetition and can be no repetition for experience is a continuous change what happens then when a totally new sense presentation arises how can it have in addition to its own apport the perception or judgment which refers it to the past and declares it to be this again it sounds a paradox my theory of the mind gives me the explanation recognition is the form which prior cognition gives to new experience the mind receives the new presentation into a ready prepared organization of past knowledge and incorporates it recognition is the expectancy with which the mind grasps the novel the unknown the unforeseen by this i mean not only that recognition has prospective value the whole attitude of life is forward-looking and all value seems to be prospective i mean more than this the past as from being present it becomes past gives form and substance to the present activity and is carried along in it it is this incorporation of past experience in present activity and not repetition and also not resemblance of present experience to past experience which constitutes recognition and this explains why and in what way all cognition is of necessity recognition the life of the mind the mental process consists in and is sustained by the continual reception of the yet unknown into the frame or organization of the already known we modify reality by impressing on it a mark of the past in the present act by which we grasp it and with every new addition there goes a correspondent modification of the frame or organization which is the mind thus it is that all new experience comes to us bearing as it were already on it the mark of the past the mind stamps reality with this mark in the very act of apprehension not because the mind receives the manifold of sense into stereotyped frames or categories as kant supposed for the frames also are being subtly and continuously modified by the mutual adaptation of the mind to its experience and of experience to the mind 
there is no absolute repetition of anything either of mental act or of physical object there is continual new invention this then in my view is the modification of experience which makes all cognition recognition this process with the various activities i have distinguished in it not presented as exhausting but as characterizing it is the a priori condition of the possibility of recognition it is not a condition of recognition that a memory image general or particular should be present to the mind challenging comparison with or provoking a judgment on the sense datum let us now turn to the second part of the problem so far we have been considering rational or intelligent recognition only and not instinctive recognition or rather we have been considering only the recognition which appears to be explicable by the experience of the individual if my theory be true recognition is an effect of the continuity of mental process nothing in the phenomena of ordinary recognition suggests that the explanation is in bodily structure rather than in mental activity we have in fact no need to raise the question of the relation of mind and body because whatever be the nature of this relation recognition is concerned only with mental facts but when we come to study instinctive recognition there seems to be no mental continuity such as we conceive necessary to constitute an individual mind and we seem to be left with one kind of continuity only the material continuity which links by the living protoplasm in the germ one generation of conscious individuals with another it will not be disputed that instinctive behavior however we account for it presents the appearance of recognition as one of its essential traits an instinctive act is the act of one who already knows and is therefore familiar with the conditions and circumstances under which it is acting this is true even of the first performance of an instinctive action and whether or not repeated instinctive performance show any advance on or essential difference from the first performance the familiarity with the conditions we are describing as recognition is not dependent upon repetition in intelligent behavior there is no repetition but in instinctive behavior there is practically perfect repetition or rather a specific character of invariability in the repetitions but this repetition in instinctive actions marks something negative so far as mentality is concerned it implies that there is no learning by experience if then one peculiar mark of instinctive behavior is invariability in repetition and consequently an absence of learning must not recognition as a description of such behavior be unmeaning we seem to be driven for an explanation of instinctive knowledge to the bodily organization rather than to the mental organization instinct suggests something structural in the nervous system now clearly as it seems to me if it should prove possible to explain instinctive knowledge as a phenomenon of physiological processes without mind there would be a strong presumption that intelligent knowledge could also be explicable in the same way so that the whole problem of the nature of knowledge may be said to depend on the problem of the genesis of instinct and it is important therefore to show why we cannot explain instinctive knowledge without supposing the continuous activity of mind independently of physiological processes i will try to give reasons for this view an example of instinctive behavior is hardly required for the purpose of my argument but it may be useful to refer to a definite case i cannot do better than take professor lloyd morgan's classical experiment with the incubated moorhen i need not go into details the little creature after many failures of the experimenter to induce the characteristic diving action performed it at once in response to the stimulus absolutely novel in its individual experience of a romping puppy 
in this behavior everyone will i suppose admit that there was conscious awareness though many will deny that there was anything whatever in it which can rightly be called recognition yet the familiarity with surroundings the evident feeling at home in the environment the absence of strangeness and embarrassment which it exhibited in its action is so far as nature is concerned indistinguishable from what i call recognition in my own experience it is immediate knowledge but so in my view is intelligent recognition if then there be no difference of nature between intelligent and instinctive recognition is the difference in the genesis is the view i have put forward of the genesis of intelligent recognition inapplicable to instinctive recognition we know that the creature's ancestors have behaved in this characteristic way throughout a long series of past generations and that the immediacy of the response is due to a congenital disposition to act in this way but the individual moorhen does not know this unless we suppose that its memory goes back to those previous performances of its ancestors and that it has as part of its congenital disposition the power to revive memory images of them this seems improbable to such a high degree that we may as well reject it outright here then we have a creature manifesting all the signs of mentality and of mentality in a highly developed form it acts as if it remembered what it is impossible that it can remember for there is no continuity of consciousness between its action and the source of that action in past experience the only unity and continuity manifest to us is the physiological process which has carried it from the fertilized germ through the stage of unconscious life in the egg to separate individual activity does the creature's mind somehow bridge this gulf which separates its individual brain from the brains of its progenitors before we can answer this question we must form some concept of the creature's mind and its relation to the creature's body it is unnecessary in this connection to review the theories of the relation of mind and body whether it is a relation of interaction or of parallelism there is an aspect of the terms and of their relation which presents itself to everyone independently of any theory there is a certain unity of life which characterizes the complex and infinite variety of physiological processes which constitute the individual organism let us understand that this is meant when we refer to the body there is also a certain unity of conscious processes which makes awareness of every kind part of personal experience let us understand that this unity of conscious personal experience is meant by the mind this is what we ordinarily mean when we contrast body and mind that is to say we mean the living body not the dead material body and the thinking mind it is different from the contrast between body and mind when what is meant by body is a certain disposition of molecules or atoms or electrons the distinction is rather between life and mind between living process and conscious process this distinction of mind and body is i think practically the same as that of descartes the mind thinks the body lives the body being an extension is automatic and mechanical and determined the mind being inextended is independent of the body which it guides and controls and is free in the sense that it is without and not within the series of mechanical actions and reactions which modern physics have formulated in the principle of the conservation of energy i do not mean that body and mind are two substances as descartes held but that from the standpoint of a living creature endowed with conscious awareness living body and thinking mind are as descartes conceived them two completely distinct realities each with a quality that excludes the other each a unity and individual from this point of view 
namely that of a distinction between living and thinking it is possible to regard the living body as a self-regulated automaton distinct from the thinking mind or the soul a view which descartes held and which seems to accord with many recent physiological discoveries let me try and illustrate what i may call the mutual convergence and divergence of these two individual systemizations living body and thinking mind the first part of the digestive process is the mastication of the food it is followed by deglutition then by the many varied processes which are carried out by stomach and bowels the divisions between these various stages or processes of digestion are merely convenient all form part of one complex but coordinated systemic process parts only of this process are accompanied by consciousness or awareness in the form of sentience mastication is accompanied by the special forms of sentience taste and smell and all the muscular actions of the tongue and palate and the closing of the glottis during deglutition are also accompanied by awareness but from that stage in the digestive process sentience ceases and most nearly all of the succeeding stages peristaltic action and the like are devoid of sentient accompaniment altogether now we may say that sentience where it occurs in mastication and deglutition is useful to the creature it serves the purpose of incentive to obtain food and of discrimination in the food procured and equally we may say that insentience where sentience does not occur is useful so far however as the efficacy of the process is concerned there seems to be no need for its existence whatsoever it may serve a purpose but the purpose is no part of the actual process which it accompanies yet though from the point of view of the digestive process the sentient accompaniment is fragmentary and sporadic sentience itself is not fragmentary and sporadic it is one and continuous with the conscious awareness exercised by the unity we call a man's mind or soul so when we describe a man's taste as refined or cultivated or debased using the word taste in its original meaning to indicate his pleasure in what he eats the fact so far as the man's body is in question concerns only a small part of a complex physiological process which process is indifferent to it so far as the man's mind is in question it concerns the whole of that unity we call personal it is continuous with a man's character from the physiologist's point of view therefore sentience is an epiphenomenon accompanied a certain specific living process and exercising no efficacy from the psychologist's point of view sentience is an inseparable element of another and altogether different order of reality and kind of unity these two continuous processes meet for a brief moment in the functioning of a taste bulb the true image of them is that of two spheres which when they meet touch only at a point common to both but which by moving on one another have a series of points successively common these two self-centered unities thinking mind and living body if from our individual standpoint they appear as two complete systems are from another standpoint not self-centered but each continuous with a larger system of reality we know that we directly continue in our body the life of countless generations of ancestors and that we shall hand on this heritage to succeeding generations we also know though it is not so easy to envisage that our mind is not formed within our individual lifetime and anew for each individual it is continuous with the experience of past generations and has been formed out of it each individual living centre bears along in the focus of its activity the impulsion as well as the construction of an illimitable past 
now although we suppose that this past was always like the present that each individual of a former generation united in his action as we do a thinking mind and a living body yet when we think of these two systems transcending the individual life it seems to us impossible that the original source is twofold what makes the original impulsion seem single is that mind and body appear to have evolved pari passu every increase in mental range being coordinated with a complexity of brain structure while what makes the dualism in the individual seem pronounced is the complete disparity between the two orders from the standpoint of evolution we are naturally i think attracted to spinoza's idea of mind and body as two modes of one substance whether with spinoza we name this substance god or with bergson ilan vital we have to recognize that though the source may be single the manifestation is always twofold the living body and the thinking mind this brings us at once to the main problem how is this twofold continuity carried over from one generation to the next let me first notice one question which may for many people have a decisive bearing on the solution is the difference between the individual mind of an animal whose behavior is predominantly instinctive and the mind of a man whose behavior is predominantly intelligent a quantitative difference only or is it a qualitative difference also it seems to me relying wholly on analogy direct proof being obviously impossible that the mind of the lower animal is in every respect like the human mind differing only in its range there seems to me every reason to suppose that the moorhen's mind differs from mine in the ratio that its brain differs in complexity from mine its brain registers so to speak its range of action as my brain registers mine and it is not likely again judging by analogy that its mind is inadequate or more than adequate to its range of action if this be so then the mind of the lower animal is like mine a continuity of personal experience and must stand to the continuity of physiological process the living body in the relation i has schismatized by imagining two spheres in contact there is in that case no difference in kind between human behavior and that of the lower animals there is only a difference which may be very deceptive in the proportion of their behavior which we describe as instinctive and that which we describe as intelligent but is it necessary to suppose that an animal has a mind can we not class instinctive actions under vital actions we associate with mind the creation of aesthetic logical and ethical values and we find it very difficult to suppose that there is anything even corresponding to these in the mind of the animal yet it seems to me that in instinctive action though these be absent there are mental elements which are not merely vital these are a sentient enjoyment or simply sentience indicating conscious awareness of action and progress b familiarity indicated by the absence of strangeness in the behavior this is what i call recognition and c pre-awareness a certain readiness of attention or alertness indicated by a forward-looking attitude towards the action all of these if they are present and to the extent to which they are present are mental characters in the full sense of the term mental and it seems to me further that the animal mind must depend as ours does on imagery what this seems to imply is that all these characters are continuous with and derive meaning from the fact that they enter as constituent elements into a mental organization the unity of an experience it is a twofold continuity then which has to be carried from one generation to the next 
the link which joins the generations is neither living body nor thinking mind neither brain nor soul but a germ the germ neither acts nor thinks at least not in any ordinary meaning of those terms it undergoes development and it holds within it the potentiality of developing a living body and a thinking mind we are led therefore it seems to me by logical necessity to the concept of life not life the mere abstract idea of an attribute common to processes we class as living but life the concrete idea of a reality of which living body and thinking mind organic activity and personality are modes the thesis then which i have endeavoured to establish is that recognition is knowing what we know already it is the mark of our past experience which a present and entirely novel sense presentation bears and this mark is immediately apprehended as part of the presentation and is not inferred from it it implies prior cognition but it does not imply that a memory image of the prior cognition is present in consciousness together with the recognition and a fortiori it does not imply a mental process of comparison with a prior cognition or the perception or judgment of a relation of similarity it is the resultant of learning by experience the conditionate not the condition it is not by recognizing that we learn by experience but having learnt by experience we recognize learning by experience is not dependent on repetition and in experience there is in fact no repetition learning is the mental process by which the mind incorporates and assimilates experience it is an activity which begins with and continues throughout experience recognition may be intelligent or instinctive both are of the same nature each is the immediate apprehension of entirely novel sense presentations with the mark of prior cognition in intelligent recognition we can by reflection bring to the mind the factors of the process and so in a manner and within a limited range reconstitute the process we can bring to mind memory images of the prior cognition so far as the prior cognition falls within the memory range of the individual experience this gives rise to the illusion that recognition is dependent on this reflective thought we think we recognize after reflecting whereas in reality we reflect after recognizing in instinctive recognition on the other hand we cannot recognize by reflection the prior cognition because it does not fall within the individual's experience it lies in the ancestral experience the problem of recognition is the same for intelligent as for instinctive recognition how can new sense presentation be known as what is already known the solution suggested rests on a distinction between life and mind or living body and thinking mind and a comparison between the activity of each they are distinct self-centered organic continuities sentient experience enters into each system but the systems are tangential to one another the mind is an organization of experience all past experience has not only contributed to it but is incorporated within it giving it character and individuality new sentient experience can only enter by receiving the mold or mark of this organization this constitutes recognition instinctive recognition raises a larger problem how is mental continuity established and maintained between one generation and another since generations are separated by a state in which there is neither living body nor thinking mind the living germ has neither brain nor soul but is the potentiality of the development of both the solution suggested is the concept of life not an abstraction from living process but a pure universal 
concrete concept. End of chapter 7. Recording by Olivia.